You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. It's a joy to be back after a couple of weeks off, and I just want to honor uh, Pastor Hans and Pastor Al and the good work that they do in preaching the word, and I was nourished, nourished uh, by both of their sermons these last couple of weeks. Uh, If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. If you're able to remain standing for God's word, we're going to read verses 20 through 34. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that is Christ, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And verse 29, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately They recovered their sight and followed him. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We are continuing now in our study of the gospel of Matthew this morning, and we come to the final two interactions with Jesus before he enters into Jerusalem for the last time. Chapter 21 marks the triumphal entry of Christ in Matthew's gospel. And from Matthew 21 all the way to Matthew 28, the narrative slows down considerably. In fact, in all four gospels, over a third of the entire gospel narrative is given over to the passion. 
of Christ, this final week of Christ's life and ministry. And the reason why all four gospels, including Matthew, slow down is because this is the main point. That Jesus Christ came not just to have teachings that were impactful or heal those who were sick, but to give his life as a ransom. And so this is the final two interactions, what we just read this morning, before Christ enters Jerusalem for the last time. And these two interactions with Christ illustrate for us two distinct postures of heart. The first interaction illustrates for us an appeal for greatness. It's an appeal for greatness. Tell me, Lord, that you'll sit my sons both at your right hand and at your left. The first posture is an appeal for status and greatness. And of course, the second interaction with the two blind beggars illustrates for us an appeal for mercy. And it's interesting, in both encounters, both with the the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and with the two blind beggars outside of Jericho, Jesus asks both of them the same exact question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? I can imagine Jesus asking the same question to us this morning, if he were here. If you encountered him, what do you want me to do for you? Well, there are two main scenes in in this text before us. Uh, The two scenes I've entitled first, climbing up, and the second I've entitled crying out. Climbing up and crying out, and then we'll end with how to avoid the former and embrace the latter. Climbing up and crying out. First, climbing up. Look at verse 20 and following. One more time with me. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she takes a worshipful posture and she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, what's going on here? The window is closing for the disciples to secure their cabinet positions in the new kingdom. Jesus now for months and months and months has been revealing to his disciples that he has come to bring a new kingdom and that he is in fact the new king of the kingdom. And so every king of every kingdom needs a cabinet. They need people. They need people that can exercise their authority, one at the right hand and one at the left. And so James and John have the audacity to go up to Jesus and they see the window is closing for them to lobby for their cabinet positions in the new kingdom. Remember before Mama Zebedee asked this question to Jesus, Jesus had just shared with his disciples that he is going to enter Jerusalem for the last time. And there in Jerusalem, he is going to be flogged and he is going to be murdered. And so the thought is, we need to start lobbying now for our positions. If this is the last time we're gonna be in the great city. 
In fact, it's interesting, and I think Bruner pointed this out to me. If you go back and look, every single time that Jesus would talk about his impending suffering and death, every time, right after he would talk about his suffering and death, the apostles or the disciples would ask about their positions. What kind of power are we going to have? What kind of authority are we going to have? What about us? Isn't it true that unbridled ambition is often tone deaf and blind? In other words, ambition has a tough time reading the room. Jesus just finished talking about his humiliation and James and John want to talk about their exaltation. Talk about tone deaf. They're not reading the room. Ambition unbridled is blinding. Jesus is talking about lying down into the dust. He's talking about being flogged and murdered and they want to talk about climbing up. Ambition can be terribly blinding. But of course, the plan is to send mom as the main lobbyist. Let's send mom as the ambassador for our new positions in the kingdom. After all, Jesus, he esteems women more than any other Jewish rabbi. He listens to them. He has a soft spot. He dignifies women, and so the brothers feel that this is their best shot, and so they send mom out to ask the question, but Jesus knows exactly where the question is coming from. And it's subtle, it's hard to see in the text, but he looks right past the mom and looks right at the brothers in verse 22, and he says this, you do not know what you are asking. Now we know that he is talking directly to the brothers because it's the brothers who respond to that. Mom doesn't respond to this. It's the brothers, no. So you have to picture Jesus. I don't know exactly how it went down, but you have to picture Jesus. The mom's there and say that my little sweet James and Johnny can sit at your right and your left. He's appealing to the king and Jesus goes, stares right through her, right to the brothers. And he says to them, you do not know what you are asking. I wonder how many of my own prayers would elicit the same response for Christ, from Christ. Remove this thorn from me, Christ. I'm tired of suffering. Dylan, you do not know what you are asking. As Matthew Henry notes, quote, in just a few days, it will not be glorified apostles at Jesus' right hand and left, but it will be crucified criminals. You do not know what you are asking. And Jesus with otherworldly patience, oh, the patience of Christ, with them and with us. Continues in verse 22. He says to them, remember he's a week away from being pinned to a Roman cross. He says, are you able? Are you able 
to drink the cup that I am to drink? (laughs) And they say to him, we are able. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Now, what on earth is going on here? Jesus essentially says, you cannot drink the cup that I'm gonna drink. You don't know what you're asking. But then he says, you will drink my cup. The cup, listen, represents Jesus' suffering and dying. The cup represents his passion, his future. This is the cup that he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane that God would would let pass by him. Let this cup pass from me. This is to to take down to the bottom the full and complete wrath of God against, against sin. That cup they cannot drink. They cannot handle the foaming wrath of God that is spilling over that cup. However, There is a sense in which they and every disciple, now listen, that goes for you. If you say, I follow Christ, there is a sense in which they and every disciple of Jesus will share in his suffering. You don't get out of this thing without any scars. There is a sense in which following Christ will always come at a cost. It will always have a cross to bear, a cup to drink. And so Jesus says, yes, you will drink my cup eventually. We learn in the book of Acts that James was killed at the hands of Herod. James drank the cup. John, we learn, was was sent out to die and to rot at the island of Patmos where God had other plans and he wrote the book of Revelation. John eventually drank the cup. And this interaction between Jesus and now James and John elicits a reaction from the other 10. And what happens next puts to rest any notion that the early church was free of the kind of division and infighting that we see in the church today. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody that, you know, I mean, I've done this. I've said this. You know, I wish we could just get back to the early church when everything was harmonious and there was unity and there was no infighting. Now we just, we have all these denominations and everyone's blah, 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 blah. Nothing's really changed. (laughs) Nothing's really changed. We've gotten more clever with our divisions, but what happens next puts to rest any notion that this kind of division didn't happen in the early church. And Jesus is with them. (laughs) He's just, he's with them. Look at what happens in verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Real quick, there's two ways to look at this. There's the sort of optimistic way and the pessimistic way. The optimistic way is the 10 others realize just how tone deaf this is and how out of sorts this is. And they realize that this is just inappropriate. I don't think that's what's going on. I take the pessimistic view that James and John got to Jesus' ear about the positions before they did. You can decide on your own. 
Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And they're great ones, literally they're loud ones. That's what that means. They're loud ones. We do know that volume doesn't mean power. They're loud ones. They're great ones. Exercise authority over them. And this is what Jesus says in verse 26. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying the church, particularly the leaders in the church, but the church in general, is to be a countercultural institution. The church is to be a countercultural institution. Christians are not to climb and clamor for position, but instead greatness is defined by humble servitude. Firstness in the economy of Christ's kingdom looks like slavery. Firstness looks like lastness in his kingdom. Beloved, in the church today, isn't it true that we've turned pulpits into platforms for personality instead of a sacred desk for gospel proclamation? In the church today, we are deeply impressed with smooth rhetoric and terribly bored with godly character. Isn't it true with itching ears in the church today, we've traded Bible exposition for loud political punditry and we wonder why the conscience of our nation is so divided. Isn't it true that judgment begins in the house of the Lord? Before we go and critique the problems of culture, which are endless and profound, the church have to, has to have the courage to critique inside. And when we've given away pulpits for partisan politics and breaking news punditry, we wonder why things are the way they are. We, like the first disciples, think that power comes through climbing up And Christ here in this text is showing them and us that true power comes through getting low, by getting low. Oh, Jesus, you don't live in the real world. I mean, maybe this was first century stuff, but we're in the 21st century. The, the, the principalities and powers are just, the current is so intense. Jesus, you don't know how intense it is. I think he does. Jesus says to the disciples, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, give us power. 
Give us status. Give us leverage. And he says, what about getting low? Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And then he couches everything in the passion. He says in verse 28, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. How important is this ethic to Jesus? This greatness through servitude. How important, how central is this ethic in the mind of our Christ? It's so central that he uses his own death to motivate the kind of posture of heart he wants for his people. As another writes, Jesus descended into greatness. And he's calling us to do the same. He descended into greatness, Jesus did. And he's calling his disciples to do the same. Well, that's the first posture of the heart. What do you want me to do for you? The disciples learn a lesson. They climb up and Jesus teaches them the main ethic of leadership in his kingdom. From climbing up, now we move to crying out. Look at verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd, verse 31, rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It's interesting, Jesus had just said in the previous section that he came not to, not to be served, but to serve. And here the crowd wants the opposite to take place. They don't want Jesus to serve, they want him to be served. Do you notice? It's the crowd that's hushing the, the, the voices of the voiceless, the marginalized. They try to suppress these men. No, be quiet. We're to serve him. He is not to be served, or he is to be served, not to serve. Quiet. But these two men also have ambition. James and John had an ambition that led to blindness, but these men have an ambition that leads to sight. Their need for rescue drives their audacious zeal. They're not trying to climb for status. No, they are crying out for rescue. And so when they're told to be quiet, I love the defiance of these men. I love it. When they're told to be quiet, what do they do? They double down. Krazo in the Greek. They cry out all the more. It means that they, they wailed. They, they lost their heads. They got big and loud and became fools. They lost all dignity. It means to bawl and wail and scream and croak. Why are they doing this? Why such audacity? Why such zeal? 
Because ironically, listen, these two blind men can see better than everyone else in the story. They can see better than everybody else in the story who's coming. Faith comes by hearing. And they heard. They heard that Jesus Christ, the son of David, was coming. He was passing by them. They knew that the promised king of Israel, a descendant from the throne of David, they knew that this king was different than any other king. They knew this king was fueled by compassion and not dominance. They knew this king gets low. They knew this king heals the humble. They knew this king doesn't love palaces or prestige or status, but loves people and looks them in the eye and dignifies each and every one of them. They knew this king was different. And so they're full of ambition, but their ambition doesn't lead to blindness. It leads to sight. They don't want to climb up. They want to cry out. Verse 20 or 32. And stopping. When Jesus stops, the crowd stops. Why? Because they have to. (laughs) He's the king. And he stops because two nobodies to everyone else are somebodies to him. I want you to think about this in your own prayer life. When you're alone and you're crying out to God because you're going through something. Follow Jesus in the Gospels. Find out who he listens to. Who stops him. What stops him? I promise you that when you cry out with desperation, honest, please, he's listening to you. He's stopping. He's turning and he's listening to you. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Same question he asked the sons of Zebedee. What do you want from me? (laughs) Jesus, they're blind. Hello, read the room, king of kings, they're blind. Why does he ask the question? Because he wants to get to their heart. Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, literally compassion, his bowels are moved. (laughs) In compassion, he touched their eyes. Didn't have to do that. But he touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. And look at this. They followed him. (laughs) They had been following him with their hearts. And now they get to follow him with their eyes. Son of David, have mercy on me. And these men get to follow him on his passion journey to the cross. Two forms of ambition. Climbing up, which leads to blindness. Crying out, which leads to sight. 
do you see that, do you see what Matthew's doing? By, by putting these two accounts back to back, Matthew wants his reader to see two kinds of ambition one that desires status and authority, and one that desires mercy. And again, as I mentioned, Jesus asked the same question to both James and John and the beggars. What do you want me to do for you? And I, I started this sermon the same way. I'm going to end it. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Like in the quietness of your own heart, don't shout it out. If you, I mean, can. What do you want him to do for you? Listen, it's not wrong to ask for healing. It's not, ask, it's not wrong to ask for the thorn to be removed or sight to be restored or the marriage to be repaired or, 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 or it's not wrong. Jesus loves those prayers. We're to pray for our daily needs. But what's at the bottom of that? What do you want mostly in life? In your honest heart, are you looking to climb for just a, a little more status, a little bit more notoriety, a little bit more authority? Or are you looking out, looking to cry out for the mercy of God? It's obvious, isn't it, which ambition God is pointing his people to? Not to climb up, but to cry out. And so I want to end with this. How? How do we avoid climbing up and embrace crying out? First, I think we need to take an honest, another honest, sobering look at the cross of Christ. How do we avoid climbing up and embrace crying out? I think we need to first look at the cross because listen, it was at the cross, at the cross is the last time that the word crazo is used in Matthew's gospel. Remember that word? To cry out, to, to weep, to wail, to shout. The last time Matthew uses that word in his gospel is on the cross. But the one crying out is not a blind beggar. The one crying out is not someone with a withered hand. It's not somebody who has physical brokenness or emotional brokenness. The one crying out is Christ himself. Same word, cried out. He cried out. Jesus begged God for mercy. Do you realize that? Jesus cried out. He weeped. He wailed. As he's pinned to a Roman cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying for mercy. And yet he gets silence from heaven. He gets silence. Why? Christ cries out for mercy and gets silence so that when we cry out for mercy, we get mercy. We get a, a Messiah who stops. Jesus cried out to his father to receive mercy and instead he received judgment, more judgment, more wrath so that when we cry out to our father in need, when we are in need, we receive grace and not judgment. 
mercy and not shame. In other words, we cry out for mercy because Jesus cried out and received judgment. So how do you embrace crying out instead of climbing up? You look to the cross. You look to the cross. Second and finally, how do we cry out instead of climb up? We look not only to the cross, but we also look to the resurrection. Listen, we will stop clamoring and climbing for status to the degree that we believe what we currently possess is far better than anything else. In other words, if we could see, another preacher uses this analogy just wonderfully, if we could see the medals hanging around our neck right now because of our union with Christ, if we could see our trophy case, if we could see our accomplishments that were granted to us by Christ, if we could see the medals hanging around our neck, we would never see the need to climb any other platform if we could appreciate the current royalty in our blood, we would stop clamoring for a name here. If we knew that we were already seated with him in the heavenly places right now, we would give our lives away in the service of others. Friends, the point is this, where do you climb if you're already at the top? This is the doctrine of our union with Christ. Everything that was ours, our sin, our baggage, our shame, our guilt, he took on the cross as he's being abandoned by his father. But then that's not the end of the story. Praise be to God, all of that is shifted to him. But now on the cross, he shifts all of his righteousness, all of his medals, all of his accomplishments. His perfect life is now pushed onto us. His perfect status with the Father, when the Father sees you, he sees Christ's clean record. Where are you going to climb if you're already at the top? So how do we embrace crying out and not climbing up? We look to the cross where Christ cried out and received silence so that when we cry out, we receive mercy. And second, we look to the resurrection where Jesus Christ is the conquering victor and gives us all of those medals. And now, now we are free. Free to serve one another. Free to serve our neighbors. We don't need anything. We have everything. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Forgive me. Forgive us, God, when we have clamored to climb, when we've used people and rather than serving them, even in the church, oh God, forgive us. Thank you for your otherworldly patience with your disciples then and your disciples now. Thank you that you are slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You're not full of disappointment. You're full of love. You know our frame. Help us, Lord, to walk in a way that embraces crying out instead of climbing up. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.